This is episode 58 of the March of History, the fate of Crassus. In our last episode, Crassus blundered his army right into a desert trap set by the Parthian general Serena. And then, all day long, the Parthians rained arrow after arrow down on the Roman army as they were simultaneously besieged by heat and thirst in the desert. And in the most personal blow of the Battle of Carrae for Crassus, his dear son, Publius, was killed. Finally, we left off with night coming and both sides separating after the first day of the battle has ended. And that is where we pick up our episode today in episode 58, The Fate of Crassus. That night, after the first day of the Battle of Carrae, is a horrible and anxious night for the Roman army. No one bothers to bury the dead or to take care of the wounded. Instead, everyone is too busy worrying about his own fate. And honestly, there don't really seem to be any good options left to them. Fighting the next day clearly isn't an option. Earlier that day, they had blundered into the Parthian army at full strength and had been massacred. So this idea that after the massacre, they're going to wake up the next morning and fight a rousing battle and defeat the Parthians, highly unlikely. At the same time, fleeing at night into the desert doesn't seem like much of a better option. And then there's the agonizing question of what to do with all the wounded. Ideally, you would take them with you. No army wants to just abandon its wounded on the battlefield. But realistically, if you take them with you, they will slow the army's march down. And that's important when you're fleeing in the face of the enemy, who's entirely made up of cavalry. But here's the thing. If you march and let the wounded fall behind and ignore their cries for help, then they will act as a sort of unintentional guide for the Parthians to find the Roman army. Meaning that all the Parthians will have to do is to follow the trail of screaming, dying Romans to find where the Roman army went. So this very difficult moral debate is raging in the Roman camp that night, and eventually they decide that they all want to hear what Crassus has to say. After all, despite all of his blunders, Crassus is their proconsul. He is their general. He's their leader. Let's hear what he has to say. But remember, Crassus has just lost his son. His son has been killed, beheaded, and his son's head has been paraded before him and the entire Roman army just earlier that day. And it seems that this, combined with the stunning defeat of Crassus's army combined to break Crassus. Ancient biographer Plutarch describes Crassus's condition when his officers come to hear his thoughts on this debate. He says, quote, But he, meaning Crassus, wrapped his cloak around him and hid himself where he lay as an example to ordinary minds of the caprice of fortune but to the wise of inconsiderateness and ambition, who, not content to be superior to so many millions of men, 
being inferior to two, esteemed himself as the lowest of all. End quote. So the army went to Crassus to hear his thoughts, and Crassus just laid where he was and hid himself in his cloak, too in shock and perhaps too depressed to say anything at all. And Plutarch says he had been brought low to such condition because he had not been content to be master over millions of men throughout the Roman Republic. But instead, Crassus saw two men above him, Pompey and Caesar. And so because of this, he thought of himself as the lowest person in the Republic. And what Plutarch is saying here is the ancient version of appreciate what you have. Don't compare yourself to others, which Crassus failed to do. Or as the saying goes, it's one of my favorite sayings, comparison is the thief of joy. Crassus had so much in life. The third man in the entire Roman world. And now look at him. Brought low to nothing by his ambition, by his greed, by his attempt to equal the feats of Caesar and Pompey rather than appreciating what he had. Cassius and some of the other lieutenants try to comfort Crassus and get him moving again. But Crassus is in his own world and pays no attention to them. So the army, or at least the officers, end up holding their own meeting without Crassus, without their general. And at this meeting, it is agreed upon that flight is really their only option. So as silently as they can, the army leaves in the middle of the night. But this flight, without the leadership of their general is a disorganized and anxious one. Right away when the army starts to leave, the sick and wounded realize that they are being left behind, and they start shouting out and lamenting. Despite the piteous cries of their wounded comrades, the Roman army marches on. But like I said, the army is anxious and shaken up after their loss, only... Earlier that day, it's the night after the battle. So at various times throughout the night, as they march, they think the enemy is coming. And so they would either change direction to try to avoid the enemy, or stop in their march and fall to battle formation to wait the enemy and fight them. Only to realize that no one is coming at all. Their nerves are shot. They're jumping at ghosts. And the Romans, being without clear leadership, aren't very decisive either. At times, they stop to pick up some of the wounded that are following behind. I guess their piteous cries got the best of them, and they wanted to help these men. Other times, the Roman army stops to put some of the wounded down and leave them behind. I guess realizing that they're moving too slow in carrying the wounded soldiers. And so this nighttime flight of the Roman army is slow, it is disorganized, and it lacks clear direction. The nearest city the Romans are heading for is Carrhae, and so the battle becomes known as the Battle of Carrhae. But the first that Carrhae, the city, actually hears of this battle is from a Roman man named Ignatius. 
Ignatius reaches the city with 300 horse well before the rest of the army at midnight, and Ignatius simply yells to the sentries of the city in Latin, and they're not in Italy, but he yells in Latin and tells them to tell their governor that Crassus has fought a great battle with the Parthians. And then he rides away. He doesn't even give them his name or the result of the battle, just that Crassus has fought a great battle and then rides away. And in doing this, Ignatius saves himself and his men with him, but loses his reputation. Now, this governor of Care must have been an intelligent man because he guesses that all is not well considering the confused and rushed way the message was delivered to him. So he orders his garrison to arms in the city and goes out to meet Crassus and welcomes him and the remainder of the Roman army into Care. So with the Roman army having reached some modicum of safety, the next morning arrives and the Parthians go to the Roman camp that they had left the night before. And there they find many wounded and dying Romans there. Plutarch says they put no less than 4,000 men to the sword. Other wounded stragglers that had fallen behind the army on the march are hunted down and killed by the Parthian-like cavalry. Then the Parthians come across a sizable contingent of Romans, four cohorts that had gotten separated from the main Roman army in the night and never found their way to Care. And upon seeing the Parthians coming, these four cohorts of Romans retreat to a small hill. The Parthians then surround them on this hill and begin killing them in an absolute slaughter. Finally, when there are only 20 Romans left, these Romans draw their swords and charge the Parthian ranks where they're at their thickest. And the Parthians so admire the courage of these men to do this that they actually open their ranks and let the 20 Romans charge through their lines and get safely to Care. This is a rare example of respect and honor to an enemy in ancient warfare. All too often, ancient warfare is nothing but brutality and treachery. Now, at this point, Serena isn't sure if Crassus is in Care or if he's already fled Care. If he isn't in Care, Serena hardly thinks the city is worth putting under siege. His goal is to catch Crassus. He doesn't really care about a bunch of Roman soldiers sitting in a city like Care. He can deal with them at his own convenience. He needs to catch Crassus. So, Serena sends his interpreter to Care. And outside the city walls, the interpreter calls in Latin for Crassus or Cassius and says that Serena, his general, desires to have a conference with them. Crassus hears this and is thrilled. Now, soon after this, a band of Arabians arrives outside of Care, and these Arabians, as Plutarch calls them, had been to the Roman camp many times in the past, and so they know Cassius and Crassus by sight, and they spot Cassius on the city walls, and they call to him, telling him that Serena desires peace and would give them safe passage. The catch that the Romans have to withdraw completely from Mesopotamia. Now, Cassius loves this idea. The Romans really 
at this point, they're just looking to get out of Mesopotamia with their lives. They have no grand ambitions anymore of conquering any territory. They're just hoping to survive. So Cassius asks the Arabians to go back to Serena and set up a time and place for a meeting. So the Arabians leave and go to Serena and deliver this message. But it turns out that this whole offer of peace and safe passage was nothing more than a trick. Serena just wanted to make sure that Crassus and Cassius were actually in Care before he bothers putting the city under siege. Now that he knows that they are there, the next day, he marches his army to Care. And when Serena arrives at Care, he is insulting and haughty to the Romans. He demands that they hand over Crassus and Cassius bound if they expect any mercy from him. So the Romans, at this point, realize that they've been duped yet again. So they plan to wait until night and then flee Care under the cover of darkness. And ideally, a plan like this to flee under the cover of darkness would be a plan you'd want to keep as secret as possible. But Crassus tells the plan to a man named Andromachus. And Andromachus is a man who Plutarch describes as the most faithless of men. <laughs> And not only does Crassus confide in this most faithless of men, Andromachus, he also chooses Andromachus to be a guide for the army. And here we have yet another reason why Crassus is a poor general and a poor leader. He doesn't seem to have any ability to accurately judge characters of people. And that gets him into trouble again and again. Andromachus is in active communication with the Parthians. And so he tells the Parthians that the Romans are leaving that night. The Parthians get this message, but they don't want to fight at night. It's dangerous to fight at night in the ancient world. So for the time being, they let the Romans slip out and go, figuring that the Romans are on foot. They are on horseback. They can easily catch up with them in the morning. So Andromachus then leads the Romans out of Care at night, but he leads them on a ridiculous roundabout route through swamps and difficult ground full of ditches. And he does this so the Romans won't outrun the Parthians before day comes. He wants to make sure that the Romans are still within catching distance of the Parthian army. And again, like with the Arab guide Ariamnes that had led the Roman army into the desert and into the Battle of Cary to begin with, some of the Romans are not so gullible as Crassus and start to get the idea that their guide is up to no good. And again, Cassius is one of these Romans. So Cassius actually turns back and returns to Cary abandoning Crassus. There, he collects 500 horsemen and rides off to Syria. And he duly makes it there safely, so he was an intelligent guy. He knew what he was doing. Now, Cassius wasn't the only one of the Romans doubting Crassus and his guide. So 5,000 other Romans, under the leadership of a man named Octavius, find alternate guides. 
And these 5,000 men in Octavius split away from Crassus. And at this point, this is most of the army. So Crassus is now the inferior force, and Octavius is leading most of the Roman army away from Crassus. And these new guides leading Octavius and his men are honest guides. And so these guides lead them into the mountains by dawn, where they are safe from the Parthian cavalry. Meanwhile, Crassus and the men following him stick with their man, Andromachus. Crassus has with him four cohorts and a small number of cavalry. And it's a little confusing in the sources, but by the time dawn comes, Crassus and his men may have been bogged down in what amounts to wetlands or some other difficult terrain, or at the very least, they were on a flat plain not far from where the mountains begin, which being on a flat plain when cavalry is chasing you is not good. So, like I said, it's, it's difficult to understand what the ancient sources are saying. He's either in wetlands or he's on a plain or, or maybe a bit of both. Now, at this point, as dawn comes and Crassus is still caught out in the open, the Parthian army is spotted and they are approaching Crassus's army. Now, Crassus still isn't so far away from Octavius and his 5,000 men that are on the edge of the mountains. Plutarch says that they're only a mile and a half away from each other. But for some reason, instead of marching toward Octavius and towards the safety of the mountains, Crassus has his force march to a small hill, which isn't a very good defensive position. Now, Octavius and his men see what's happening from their high vantage point, in the beginning of the mountains, they see Crassus and his men on a small hill and the Parthians coming towards them. It's clear that the situation is desperate. So Octavius hurries down from his high ground in the mountains and goes to Crassus' defense. And at first, only a few of the Roman men follow him, but then shame overcomes the rest of them and they start admonishing each other for abandoning their general, and soon the whole force, all 5,000 men, are moving down to join Crassus. This Roman force of 5,000 men, led by Octavius, then attacks the Parthians and does manage to chase them off. After this, the Romans surround Crassus with their shields and declare proudly, that no Parthian arrow will touch their general so long as a single one of them is left alive. So it seems that despite his many blunders, Crassus hasn't fully lost the faith of his soldiers yet. Though just as important in all of this is the code of honor that governs soldiers in the Roman army. To abandon your general, regardless of his abilities or inabilities and his mistakes, was a great dishonor. It's a little akin to respecting the office of the presidency, even if you don't respect the man in the office. So at this point, Serena decides to fall back on some of his old tricks again. First, Serena has some of his men speak within earshot of some Roman prisoners that he has, and these Parthians intentionally allow themselves to be overheard, saying that the Parthian king doesn't want them to wipe out the Roman force. 
Instead, he wants them to make a show of treating Crassus well as a step towards reconciling Rome with Parthia. Very nice words, right? Serena then sets these prisoners free to go to their fellow Romans and to tell them this news. And of course, these Roman prisoners genuinely believe that they have overheard the Parthian plans. And so they give this inside intelligence as they see it to the Roman army and to Crassus. The Parthians then pull back from the Romans and Serena rides over near the Roman lines in person with some of his officers. There, Serena, in a sort of universal language, unstrings his bow in sight of the Romans and holds out his hands. Essentially, he is showing that he comes in peace and wants to negotiate on a peace. Serena then tells the Romans, presumably through a translator, that he wants to make a truce. And upon hearing this, the Roman army becomes joyful and eager to accept this truce. This truce, the terms of which they haven't even heard yet. But by this time, it's Crassus that doesn't trust what he's hearing. It seems that Crassus has finally learned some lessons about trusting people too easily. And so Crassus says to his army that he sees no reason for the sudden change in the Parthians. In other words, none of this makes any sense. The Parthians who just the day before were killing the Romans by the dozens, by the hundreds, by the thousands, who hunted them all through the night, that chased them from Care, that tried to attack them that morning, suddenly want peace? According to who? According to some prisoners and, and according to their tricky general, Serena, none of it makes any sense. But at Crassus saying this, the Roman soldiers get angry. They tell Crassus that it is unreasonable for him to expect them to fight the Parthians in armed combat when meanwhile he is too afraid to face the Parthians when both sides are unarmed and talking of peace. Now, clearly, discipline has broken down in the army. It's very hard to imagine Caesar's army ever speaking to him that way. But Crassus' army has been through a lot, and he no longer has the prestige and the respect that is usually due to him as proconsul in general. So the two sides, Crassus, the commander, and the Roman army, go back and forth like this for a while, arguing. And Crassus tries with all of his might to convince them that if they will just wait until nighttime, they can slip into the mountains and easily escape the Parthians to safety. But to the Roman soldiers, this just looks like Crassus is too afraid to meet with the Parthians while at the same time he's expecting them to fight the Parthians in hand-to-hand combat. It seems cowardly to them. And eventually the Roman soldiers lose patience with all this, and they start banging their shields in a threatening manner. Plutarch even says they mutinied. And with this, Crassus sees no choice but to go to the parlay with the Parthians, even though he believes that this will mean his death. So Crassus dismisses his lictors, and presumably he does this that they won't want to suffer the same fate as him. He's expecting to go to his death and doesn't want to bring them with him. 
But Octavius, his officer, and another officer follow Crassus and join him, loyal to the end, or else expecting that the Parthians are negotiating in good faith. Serena then approaches on horseback and seeing Crassus on foot there, says, quote, How is this then? A Roman commander is on foot, whilst I and my train are mounted. End quote. Crassus replies to Serena and says that no error has been committed by either side since both sides have met according to the customs of their own country. And in reply to this, Serena says that the Parthian king himself is a league away, waiting with a treaty for Crassus to sign. So really, since the Parthian king is a whole league away, Crassus needs to be on horseback to get there. So Crassus calls for a horse from the Roman lines. But Serena says that there's no need for this and brings out his own horse for Crassus with a golden bit. So this is a luxurious horse. Now, this is where things get a bit saucy. Some of the Parthian grooms then forcibly put Crassus into the saddle of the horse and start striking the horse's side to make it run. All of this, as you would imagine, is very discourteous, to say the least, and certainly beneath the dignitas of a Roman proconsul. So Octavius, one of Crassus' officers, runs forward and grabs the bridle of the horse to bring it to a stop. Some of the other Romans join him and try to stop the horse with Crassus on it. At the same time, the grooms are still striking the sides of the horse to make it run. So the Romans start yanking these grooms back from the horse. Eventually, this pushing and pulling turns into a fight, and soon fists are being thrown. Octavius then draws his sword and kills one of the grooms. One of the Parthians then comes from behind and kills Octavius. And in this confusing fight, Crassus, proconsul of Syria, and one of the members of the first triumvirate, one of the most powerful men in Rome, is killed. And we don't even know exactly who kills Crassus, or even what side the person was on. Plutarch mentions a Parthian man by name as being the one who killed Crassus, but then also says that this is just conjecture. Cassius Dio, on the other hand, is only certain that Crassus was killed, but doesn't even know which side killed him, saying that it may have been the Romans who killed him to prevent his capture. Either way, we do know that Crassus dies in these rather confusing and very undignified circumstances. After this, there are conflicting reports of what happens to Crassus' men. Dio Cassius says that most of them escaped, though some were hunted down. Plutarch tells a different story. He says that Serana tells the Romans that Crassus has been punished as he deserved and that the rest of the Romans could come down from the hill without fear from him. Some of the Roman soldiers take Serena up on this offer. We aren't told their fate, but if we are to believe Serena's characters described by Plutarch, I imagine they don't fare well. Others of the Romans don't take Serena up on this, they don't trust him, and they wait until night, then they scatter. And only a few of these men who scatter at night 
make it home safely, according to Plutarch. Many of the others are hunted down by locals, by Arabians, and put to death. In total, Plutarch tells us that 20,000 men from Crassus' army were killed and 10,000 taken prisoner. As for Crassus, though he's dead now, his story isn't quite over, and this is where it gets its most colorful. There are a few very wild, colorful descriptions of what happens to Crassus' body. Cassius Dio says that the Parthians poured molten gold into Crassus' mouth in mockery of his greed. After all, Crassus had famously boasted that no man could be considered rich unless he could afford to maintain an army at his own personal expense, just like Crassus had against the Parthians. And look how that's worked out for him now, molten gold being poured into his mouth. Plutarch, on the other hand, says that Serena has Crassus' head and his hand chopped off and sent to the king of Parthia. The king of Parthia, named Orodes II, is at that time having a wedding feast for his son, who he is marrying off to the king of Armenia's sister. This is to make peace between the two kingdoms after their war. Remember, the Armenians were on the Roman side, the Parthians defeated them, and now they're making peace, as kingdoms do, through marriage. The guests at this wedding are watching the Greek play known as the Bacchae, and a tragic actor named Jason is performing the part of the play where one of the characters holds her own son's head. As you would imagine, Jason, the actor, is holding a a fake prop head made to look like a real human head, just as you would in a play today. (laughs) And just then, as Jason is performing this part, holding this fake human head in this play, the back eye, just then, in walks a man with a real human head, the head of Crassus. This man then throws down the head in the midst of the people gathered there. The Parthians all cheer, seeing that Crassus has been defeated and Crassus is dead, beheaded, hears his head. But the actor Jason has an incredible eye for a good dramatic opportunity, and he seizes it. Jason tosses aside the fake prop he had been using for a head. He scoops up Crassus's real head and starts using it as the prop for the famous scene from the play. The Parthians are loving this. At one point, the lines of the play have Jason saying, quote, I claim that honor to my courage due. End quote. And he says all this while holding Crassus' real head. At this, up pops a Parthian man who had supposedly actually killed Crassus, and he tries to take Crassus' head away from the actor Jason. And he says, quote, For it is my due and no man's else. End quote. The king of Parthia is having a blast with all of this and starts giving out rewards. Jason, the actor, even gets a whole talent for his performance with Crassus's real head. And just a side note, The Back Eye is still a play performed today. And you can find performances of it on YouTube and actually see the scene I'm talking about near the end of the play, where the mother 
holds the son's head and gives this whole impassioned speech. And you can even see the lines that Jason said. What did he say? He said, I claim that honor to my courage due. Now, meanwhile, according to Plutarch, as all of this is happening, Serena, the man who actually defeated Crassus in the field, is not about to let all of the fun and glory go to his king. So Serena spreads the word that he is bringing Crassus alive to Seleucia. Serena then picks out the Roman prisoner who looks the most like Crassus, puts him in a woman's dress, puts him on a horse, and instructs the man to answer to the title of Crassus, an imperator. Then Serena has this fake Crassus in a woman's dress march in a mock triumph. He has lictors on camels with purses hanging from their fasces and human heads stuck on the ends of the axes, still bleeding. He also has trumpeters march with them, along with a band of singing women who sing abusive songs about Crassus's effeminacy and cowardliness. Serena has this grotesque parade march through Seleucia to let everyone know of his great victory over Crassus. As always, the ancient world has a way of rubbing their enemies' noses and defeats like no one else can. And you can just imagine the steam pouring out of proud Roman ears when they hear stories like these. But things won't be happily ever after for the king of Parthia and for Serena. Not long after this, the king becomes jealous of the glory Serena has obtained by defeating Crassus, and so has him put to death. That is the problem with autocracies, is no one can shine brighter than the king or the autocrat, and inevitably if you do, you get put to death. It does not exactly encourage people to strive for great things. Later, according to Plutarch, the king of Parthia's own son tries to kill him with poison. But when the poison fails to do the job, the son then resorts to strangling his father, the king, to death. Though it should be mentioned that Cassius Dio gives a different story, saying that King Arodes II dies of old age and grief after a different son of his, not the one who strangled him, dies. Now, as for Cassius and his followers, that is a much more hopeful story. We already said that Cassius led a group of 500 cavalry back safely to Syria. Now, depending on your view, this could be seen as intelligent and courageous to break away from the pack mentality of the Roman army and to save these men, or it could be viewed as cowardly to have abandoned his commander. It all depends on your viewpoint. Either way, once in Syria... Young Cassius takes over the governorship of the province as proquaestor and then fights off the Parthian invasion that follows Carrhae, thus saving the Roman East from being swallowed up by the Parthian Empire. So that wraps up what actually happened at Carrhae. But what does all this mean for our protagonist, Julius Caesar? Well, as a true Roman patriot, Caesar is appalled by the destruction of nearly seven Roman legions 
and the loss of their eagles, which is a matter of great pride and prestige and honor, the loss of these eagles to the Parthians, an enemy empire. And Caesar will even plan an expedition in the future to invade Parthia in payback for this humiliation. That is in the future, though. On a personal level, Caesar must be deeply saddened by the horrific deaths of his longtime benefactor and friend Marcus Crassus and his charismatic son Publius, who served Caesar so well in Gaul. These are two men that Caesar knew intimately, two men that he broke bread with and shared wine with often, and he would have been heartbroken at their deaths. But let's be honest, at his heart, Caesar is a political animal. And the political ramifications of Crassus' death are massive for the entire Roman world, and especially for Caesar. Remember, Julia, Caesar's daughter's death, had greatly weakened the alliance that was the triumvirate. Now, Crassus' death has shattered it. There is no more triumvirate. A triumvirate, by its very nature, requires three people. An alliance of three keeps things balanced. If one of the three parties begins to get too high and mighty, the other two can gang up to put him in his place. And he knows this, so he stays on his best behavior. That's the whole point of a triumvirate. It's a delicate balance of powers. But now, there are only two men, Pompey and Caesar. And they're no longer tied together by marriage. Now, none of this means that Caesar and Pompey become instant enemies. Their alliance still exists, but it's a lot more fragile than before. And the various actors in the Republic know this. The Optimates know this. And the Optimates never liked the Triumvirate as an alliance to begin with. In fact, they've always hated it. So now they see more opportunity than ever before to split up this unholy alliance between Pompey and Caesar, to divide them from each other and turn them against each other. Of course, to do this, they'll need to bring one of the two men over to their side. And of course, they despise Caesar with all of their being. So siding with Caesar is just unthinkable. At this point, they're almost a party defined by their opposition to Caesar. Not entirely, but almost. But Pompey? He's a man who often changes political alliances. That's why Caesar had locked him in with a marriage contract, had locked him in with marriage to his daughter, to make sure that he couldn't flip alliances. And Pompey has always craved the respect and admiration of Cato and the Optimates. And Pompey seems a much easier man to manipulate than Caesar, not to mention much less dangerous than Caesar. And Pompey just recently became single. And to the political class in Rome, that makes him a fine target to try to rope into a marriage alliance. So now the elbowing and horse jockeying begins again in Rome with new life. 
For years, the Republic has been in a stranglehold by Pompey, Caesar, and Crassus. But not anymore. The Optimates will scramble to separate Caesar and Pompey, even as Caesar desperately tries to keep the Alliance alive. And that is where we will end our episode today. In our next episode, we head back to Rome to catch up on what's been happening there in Caesar and now Crassus's permanent absence. Before you go, let me just remind you that if you enjoyed this episode, you can leave a $1 tip to help support the show. As a thank you for the episode, we have a PayPal, and you can find the link to that PayPal in the description of this episode where the summary is. Remember, we live in a world, at least in the United States, where we tip waiters and cab drivers, bellhops, ice cream shop workers, all of which I'm in favor of. So why not tip your hardworking podcast host who digs through these ancient history tomes to bring these historical tales to life for you? Also, thank you to all those who have already contributed to our PayPal. Your support means the world and allows this podcast to continue. And thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. The podcast, as I always say, would not be possible without your constant contributions each month. So thank you so much. And if you find yourself in a financial position where you cannot support the March of History, I completely understand. I have been there myself. But what you can do is if you have an Apple device is to leave a five-star review with some things you like about the podcast so that when others search for a history podcast, they discover the March of History. Thank you all so much for listening, and I will talk to you on episode 59 of the March of History. (laughs) 